Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. With me today, all the way from Berlin, is Conrad H. Jarausch, uh, here to talk about his recently translated book, A Reluctant Accomplice. This is a, a book that just came out from Princeton University this year. Uh, it's a collection of his father's letters uh, from the Eastern Front during World War II. His father was a German soldier, uh, also named Conrad, so don't be confused by that. Um, this book was originally published in German in 2008 as Stille Sterben, and as I said, it was just recently translated, so I'm glad to have the excuse uh, to invite uh, Dr. Jarosch onto the show. Thanks for being with me today, Conrad. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. We always ask our authors to introduce themselves, to tell our audience a little bit about themselves, but I think in this case it's especially important because this book is so intensely personal. So um, why don't you say a little bit about how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, I was born in August 1941, about a week after my father had to leave for the Russian front, and therefore never saw him when he was alive, and neither did he see me, uh, and grew up uh, after the war in various West German places, finally ended up in the Rhineland uh, in Krefeld, uh, and my father was just a virtual presence, although I inherited his first name and also the project of my mother and various other people of his former collaborators of his um, academic circle who wanted me to step into his footsteps, which originally I intended to do because I went to a classical German high school, a gymnasium with nine years of Latin, six years of Greek, and I even had a couple of years of classical Hebrew. Uh, but then I had an adolescent crisis when I was about 16 or 17 and bailed out and ran uh, all the way to Laramie, Wyoming, uh, where I got after finishing my high school and worked in the university gardens for the summer, uh, then went to some public lectures in American studies. They had a very good program out there in Western history uh, and then decided to stay uh, to do a BA in American studies. And that's how I got from Germany to the United States because then I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. In those days, Ted Hammerow and uh, uh, George Mossy, Harvey Goldberg, and any number of other you know, really interesting people were teaching there. So it was more exciting to do European history in Madison than it was to do that in Europe. Uh, and after uh, I got my MA, I went back and um, to Germany and tried to get them to recognize my American MA. And in those days, Germans were still convinced that they had the best university system in the world. And they kind of sniveled at this proposition. And uh, I talked to Theodor Schieder in Cologne and uh, didn't connect with him at all and uh, was you know, more interested in the free university in Berlin. Uh, but um, there it took about a half a year to process my papers. And at that point, I was back in Madison. I had a 
fellowship originally and then a teaching assistantship and then um, the State Historical Society Press already decided to publish my MA thesis as the first book and then I said to myself, Conrad, if they're interested in you in the United States, you stay there, you have chances and if they don't want you in Germany, well, that's their problem. So many of your books are required reading in graduate programs, but I'm afraid I'm not familiar with that first one. Uh, no, I'm talking about one that everybody has completely forgotten, oh. which is, you know, much, which is very good. It actually helps my professional reputation. Uh, no, I mean, it's called the Four Power Pact 1933. Yeah. It was about the European diplomatic response to Hitler's seizure of well, power. That even, well, that makes your academic career all the more impressive for being so broad. I, of course, was introduced to your work on the on the professions, which is in some ways related to your father's story. I mean, it's about uh, the story of lawyers and academics and people like your father and um, like yourself in the sense that you later became an academic yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's actually the third um Project because the second one was a biography of uh, the German Chancellor uh, in 1914, Theobald von Bethmann-Hollweg, because there was at one point a so-called Fischer controversy about the German role in the outbreak of the First World War, and you know I thought you know instead of doing something piddling and some peripheral topic, I ought to go and jump in with both feet. That's what you do when you're young and somewhat arrogant, maybe. Uh, and so that's what I did there, and then the. Professions work is an offshoot. It's actually number four uh, of work that I did on the German students uh, because I had the chance to go to the Davis Center uh, in its second year at Princeton University for a postdoc when Lawrence Stone was running it. And there I ended up working on German students and did a book called Academic Illiberalism, Student Society and Politics in Imperial Germany. And then if you pers if you continue with students, some of them actually graduate and go out and become professionals. And so that, yeah, right. Well, I mean, in, in today's market in the United States, that's tough. So that, uh, you know, um, that was a logical extension of the work on students. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Reluctant Accomplice then. I've seen reviewers call your father's story typical, and I see their point, but in some ways I found him to be quite an unusual person. So um, tell me a little bit of, about him as a person. Okay, I mean, he's typical in some ways of the... Um, of what Peter Lorenberg called uh, the Nazi uh, youth cohort, namely the people born around 1900, because um, he grew up during the First World War and was part of the age group that was heavily propagandized uh, by their teachers and by just the public in general and the Fatherland Party and various other folks like that. And in this, and he made an um, got an emergency high school graduation certificate in 1917, did some national service, and in the summer of 1918, he started, um, he got drafted um, and sent to the artillery, uh, which he didn't really like because the horses were big and he was a kind of slight intellectual. <laughs> that was a mismatch. So, uh, But he was lucky and the war ended before he was actually uh, got to the front. But that made him typical of a group of people who didn't actually have fighting experience like his older brother, uh, who was much more disillusioned and, and, and therefore more realistic. Whereas these kids 
never quite arrived in the Weimar Republic. Many of them uh, went to free corps. Uh, my father did not do that. You know, he went, studied in Berlin and Freiburg. Uh, but he did a topic which, again, for his dissertation, which, again, was typical of Weimar intellectuals, namely he worked on the um, on the Icelandic sagas, on the religious beliefs in them. And these things are um, recordings of uh, tales, myths, religious stories, actual battlefield uh, combat, and so on in Iceland, just at the point of Christianization, which is about the year 1000. So people who were in the Nordic culture and who were in the neoconservatism, you know, picked up topics like that. And once again, he is typical because he ended up finishing his training uh, in the sort of mid to second half of the 1920s and then got onto the job market just at the point when it started to collapse around uh, his ears and those of all of his other fellows because with the Great Depression, it was extremely difficult to get into Prussian state service to teach. And he was able to manage to get one of those coveted jobs uh, still uh, in Schwed an der Oder, uh, and then eventually in the mid-30s moved to Magdeburg, uh, where he was in charge of teacher training for Protestant uh, teachers um, in high schools uh, in the region. And he was co-editor of a journal called Schule und Evangelium, uh, which was for these Protestant teachers. And he was a collaborator of Magdalena von, von Thieling, my godmother, a Prussian noblewoman who was a uh, conservative publicist and a member of the Prussian Landtag. There are several things I think that require more attention in that particular segment. And one of them is this terrific photograph of your father in 1918 um, as a recruit. And uh, other reviewers have commented on this as, as well. It just he's he's this young boy, and he looks like he's going to be swallowed up by his boots. I mean, they're so big uh, in comparison to him. And I think that's uh, it's an interesting commentary on the state of the German army in 1918. Yes, absolutely. Because an athlete, he was not. Which is one of the things that I try to change about myself. <laughs> I was also struck by the, the possibility of your father sort of migrating in that direction towards the Fry Corps or the SA, and of course he doesn't, and I think uh, his Christianity must have played an important role in, in keeping him away from the, the extremes of that kind of folkish culture. I mean, he, he studies Nordic culture and, and the kinds of things that the, the folkish types are really into, and yet he never dives all the way in, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that creates an enormous tension because on the one hand, you know, he is he thinks of himself as a Prussian. That's one of the things he says to my mother uh, in the correspondence. Uh, and he is also a German nationalist in contrast to my mother, who was a teacher of French and, you know, was into international kinds of things. Um, and... Uh, at the same time, he was a neo-Lutheran. Uh, he was a theologian, reading the leading lights, uh, not only of the day, but you know, starting with Kierkegaard uh, and Karl Barth and uh, Bultmann and uh, Gogarten uh, and so on. And he reviewed their books. So I mean, he was at the sort of cutting edge of the theological discussion of his day. But he still had a kind of direct, very direct. Uh, Christian belief. Uh, and as long as a kind of national renewal could be thought of, 
uh, as leading uh, the country back from Weimar decadence to a sort of system in which there would be order, in which there would be discipline in the classroom, in which there would be, you know, hierarchies and so on. You know, these two things could go hand in hand. But at the point when it turns out that a lot of the Nazis are neo-pagans, uh, you know, and for instance, the cathedral in Quedlinburg was taken over by Himmler and uh, various kinds of Nordic runes carved, you know, on the inside where there used to be Christian symbols uh, and stuff. You know, my father got very upset because uh, the church was, you know, in spite of the German Christians, got more and more pushed aside uh, by the Nazis. So there is a, is a conflict with which he labored through his entire life. Uh, then between uh, wanting to be open to the renewal of Germany and to stay in touch with his own high school students, many of whom were uh, kids in the Hitler Youth and were enthusiastic about National Socialism on the one hand and his Christianity on the other hand and also his cultural sophistication because uh, the SR, you know, folks uh, were, you know, beer hall uh, brawlers you know, lower middle class, you know, uh, overweight belching and so on. Folks, you know, that didn't really read the classics uh, in their original language. And my father during the war was reading Aristotle and Plato and Greek and various, you know, kinds of, you know, Latin poetry in, 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 in Latin and so on. So you have a kind of a cultural gap there as well. And complaining about his uncouth comrades who, whom he shares a room with and belching and drinking and talking about girls. Yeah, well, sure, sure. But, you know, and it creates conflicts. But the problem with, you know, that I had for a long time with him is that he doesn't resolve these conflicts. You know, the conflicts are not big enough to keep him away from the war and from, you know, supporting at least German expansion in East Central Europe. Yeah, that's one of the things that's very clear from the letters is his enthusiasm for this project of uh, remaking the East, of German expansion in Eastern Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about that, maybe um, the larger context and then your father's reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, you know, he uh, clearly uh, was was a historian and thought in terms of the Holy Roman Empire. And therefore, the Treaty of Versailles was anathema to him, like to many educated Germans uh, at the time. And uh, he wanted to get back territories which were ethnically German, at least at one time, uh, or territories which had been culturally German, which had been influenced uh, by uh, German high culture uh, in East Central Europe. Um, the problem, of course, in all of that is that these are medieval conceptions which do not sort of go hand in hand with modern uh, nationalism. And, you know, these are in some ways colonial territories as far as uh, the Nazis were concerned. And there are, you know, these various kinds of comparisons, you know, with North American, you know, natives and so on. But uh, they were already settled. I mean, you know, there were people there who were Christians, who were, you know, Catholic, uh, you know, Poles and uh, folks, you know, of various other ethnicities and so on. And then the question became, you know, what to do with them. Uh, and, you know, I think he, he kind of went back and forth uh, on some of that because he shared many prejudices of his uh, age uh, cohort of his time and his place of German order and discipline and 
cultural superiority and so on. And even in the descriptions of the landscapes or some of the villages, the houses and so on, this comes through if he thinks of them as being ill-tended and, uh, you know, the gardens are, you know, full of weeds rather than, you know, nicely, you know, cleaned up, uh, you know, with all the radishes, you know, in rows and whatever, you know, mm -hmm. these sorts of things, you know, you have, you have it in observations, um, but on the other hand, you know, then he gets rather uncomfortable when the Nazis start occupying Denmark and Norway. And when he thinks, you know, that the Navy really wants to get colonies back and that this is really about uh, the second attempt uh, at Weltmacht at uh, becoming a global player uh, for Germany, because that transcends his historic sense of the German role in Central Europe. He he starts out with that as a kind of basic premise that that is justified uh, by the past because other you know, groups in Central Europe have not succeeded in creating political entities over a long period of time. Um, and therefore, you know, the Germans are the carriers of culture, of high culture. But when you know, the sort of Nazi project transcends that, uh, you know, what I would call a kind of expanded nationalism, a kind of historic, historically expanded Reich nationalism. Once the Nazis go beyond that and so on, he begins to wonder if, if this isn't going to sort of um, you know, lead to defeat and if the Germans are actually capable of doing any of that. He lives long enough to see the United States enter the war, and that seems to uh, trouble him precisely for that reason. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, it's the Russian campaign where he doesn't see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel anymore. He just sees a tunnel, mm -hmm. you know, and then he gets very despondent. And the tone of the letters changes. And then, you know, with the United States entry into the war, I mean, you know, he he had been around in 1918, you know, <laughs> he had experienced it. And he knew, you know, what, you know, it what happens when you have farm boys from Iowa, you know, that don't really have any sense in their head, you know, uh, you know, know. And, and they're being told to go and rush out of the, <laughs> out of the trench, you know, into German machine gun fire. Well, many of them actually did, you know, and they then, you know, you know, capture, you know, German trenches, you know, instead of, uh, you know, the British and the French, you know, where there were army mutinies and, you know, where they would tell their officers, go, you know, do various things to yourself. Not because they wanted to survive. So, I mean, he knew about American material superiority in terms of industrial potential, and he knew about the patriotic enthusiasm, you know, of American kids, of young American men, you know, if trained, you know, in the military, that they would actually not have these kinds of, uh, you know, um, you know, bad experiences that led other Europeans just to try to survive the rest of the war, but that they would be enthusiastic uh, and they would, uh, you know, turn the, the the balance of the battle. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no stab in the back legend uh, in his letters. And he saw it with his own eyes, the collapse of the German army in 1918. So uh, he doesn't feel the need to blame it on Jews and socialists and the people on the home front and so forth, as so many others did. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the Jews and the socialists uh, are responsible for the confusion of the Weimar Republic, you know, and and the, and the sort of cultural cultural modernity with which he can't cope, you know, which is another one of the things that I don't like about him. Yeah, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about the 
your father's position in the Wehrmacht, um, what his rank was, when he was called up, and so forth, because that's very relevant to the understanding of how these opinions that he's expressing might have manifested themselves. Yes, uh, because, you know, having, I mean, being 39 years of age means that he's no longer prime fighting material. Uh, and then, you know, since he was not, uh, you know, as I said before, an athletic specimen, uh, you know, that also went in that direction. Uh, and he was not a reserve officer, which also meant, you know, the officers, of course, served longer at higher ages and so on still uh, on the fighting end of the front. So he is in the reserves, uh, gets drafted as a private, but then relatively quickly gets promoted to NCO um, because uh, the army gets usually expanded and it needed people uh, on that level. It needed sergeants of one kind or another uh, in order to you know, lead you know, platoons or whatever, small groups of, um, of people, um, of draftees. And he gets sent to Poland, and initially the reserves there, um, the Landesschützen, um, are in charge of POW camps because the Polish campaign went relatively quickly uh, as far as the German Wehrmacht was concerned. Uh, and there were plenty of prisoners who then had to be um, locked up or at least for a while. And then he ends up in some of the selection processes um, uh, checking which of the folks are ethnic Germans that they can be sent home or which of them are farmers and they can be sent home so that they can grow food uh, for the population. But, you know, other people who were intellectuals or, uh, or who were Jewish and so on uh, or who were Polish nationalists and didn't speak any German and stuff uh, had a harder time and they stayed longer in the camps. So first of all, you know, he's doing this POW duty uh, and then once these processes sort of run their course in the winter uh, of 1940, uh, 1940, then he gets reassigned to training recruits. Uh, and uh, in as much as the German war machine continued to lumber on, uh, and even in the Polish campaign, the German Wehrmacht had uh, losses. I mean, this is often forgotten. Um, uh, these losses needed to be replenished and new age cohorts, you know, uh, and for people that had before been, um, you know, uh, doing important economic tasks and so on, you know, these folks uh, were drafted and they then needed training. And people who had already been in uniform for a while then served as trainers. And uh, my father ended up doing that during most of 1940 in Poland. And then he was moved back to uh, Germany itself, and he continued training people um, there as well. Uh, he enjoyed it in part because it was somewhat like teaching. You always had a batch of new people and you had to kind of get certain basic things across to them. But he also had some trouble with it because he didn't really have a bellowing voice uh, and a commanding presence. Um, you know, he, as an intellectual, liked to reason with folk and get them to do things because they understood they should do them rather than, you know, do the usual kind of, well, you know, maybe it's a stereotype about sergeants, but, uh, you know, uh, force them and threaten them and do various other kinds of stuff to them. Uh, he was for a while also in officer training uh, and uh, there um, 
he was not really prepared well enough by the people who were training him so that he apparently failed one of the exams, although intellectually, you know, he should have had an easy time, you know, getting through there. Uh, and, you know, his his body wasn't quite strong enough either uh, for some of it. He had problems riding, fell off a horse a couple of times. Uh, and then in the fall of 1940, apparently doing some indoor training, slipped and stumbled down some stairs, which uh, tore a meniscus in one of his knees. Uh, and since they didn't have ultrasound yet, uh, that took him out of commission for a while so that he was in hospital and they decided not to operate and see whether you know it would grow back together again. And uh, it uh, took a whole while. And during this period, there were various kinds of uh, efficiency reports, which, you know, he then did not match. Uh, and therefore, he never got promoted beyond staff sergeant. So what you have here is somebody who actually has the capacity to be an officer and should have been in that role, um, as far as his wife was concerned, uh, but uh, didn't quite get there. And that also puts him into a kind of strange intermediary position uh, of having to deal uh, with recruits on a daily basis and you know having to do the physical training over and over again uh, with them. That was quite taxing for him. Uh, and on the other hand, being a sophisticated, uh, being a keen observer, and so on, processing many of his impressions, and not having the right kind of folks to talk to about these. Because, you know, if you were in the officer's mess, which he sometimes had access to, you know, then chances that you had some educated people with whom you could share impressions were somewhat higher than if you were next to the grunts all the time. And that's one of the things that makes these letters so rich. I mean, you, you called your father an historian. He he was at least an amateur sociologist, um, you know, providing insightful commentary on the the people that he's with, on the the landscape, the architecture. It's a fascinating picture of the things that he's seeing. Yeah, I mean, he of course you know knew about nineteen excuse me eighteen thirteen fourteen and eighteen seventy eighteen seventy one so there is a kind of a tradition of of war correspondence uh, and you know actually in one of the letters from one of his former students that I got in the year two thousand um, already before the war he was reading uh, with some of his uh, high school pupils um, selections out of Dwinger's uh, book on a Russian POW camp at the end of the First World War. Um, so he is conscious of you know, witnessing, of being an eyewitness uh, to these grand historic events. Uh, and in one of the early letters, you know, in his second um, note to home, he asked my mother to keep the letters. So, you know, he is self-conscious about what he does uh, initially, and, you know, when he is in a good mood and when he has had enough rest and uh, and has time off and so on, then he even writes essays. I mean, in there are about 10 essays on specific topics uh, that are added to the letters in which he sort of tries to make sense of whatever he is seeing. Um, and that is what makes them uh, somewhat unusual. But then, of course, you know, once he is thrown into extreme situations like with the Russian prisoners and so on, then I think he mostly writes to keep his mental sanity, uh, to have some kind of connection to home and to survive um, intact as a human being. Uh, and then I think the sociology largely goes out the window. 
this seems like a good point to connect uh, your father's letters to another really uh, important book that appeared in, in the past few years, and that is the Diaries of Victor Klimper, and, um, a converted Jew who lived through Nazi Germany, um, survived the entire period living in Dresden. And um, he shares your father's urge to document what he's seeing. I mean, his diaries are called, uh, published under the title, I Shall Bear Witness. He's a, he's a very similar character, I think, in some ways. I mean, his intellectual background, he's also an academic. Um, and I was struck, Omer Bartov, when he reviewed Klemper's diaries, called Klemper the last German, um, meditating on this sense that Klemper felt himself to be the last true German, the, that everyone else had gone crazy with Nazism and anti-Semitism and, and that he didn't recognize his fellow countrymen. And one, one gets that sense almost with your, your father as well um, as, as time progresses, that he feels himself disconnected to his, his countrymen, disconnected from his countrymen that he sees around him that, uh, that don't seem to care about the things that he cares about. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously they come at it in, in out of completely different uh, situations and so on, because Klemperer, as a as a liberal scholar of Romance languages, is an Enlightenment person. I mean, and that's his relationship to religion as well. Uh, who is made into a Jew uh, again by the Nazis, uh, which is one of the dissertations uh, of Thomas Pegelow and so on that I um, supervised, the sort of linguistic divisions between Germans and Jews, um, because Klemperer does think of himself first as a German and then as somebody from a Jewish heritage, whereas, of course, my father has less difficulties with that, although he's not a Prussian Junker. So, I mean, you know, there is, you know, you know he's a, a middle class, you know, and the family is even from somewhat more modest sort of peasant Silesian origins and so on uh, person. Um, but you're quite right, you know, in terms of the intellectual situation of the Weimar Republic, uh, they share uh, many cultural responses. And then there's a kind of style uh, of being both inside and outside at the same time, this kind of double role um, of participating and yet at the same time reflecting, um, which I think he shares uh, as well. Yes, and as you say, from dramatically different perspectives, but for me that's what made the, the similarities all the more striking, that they both feel like they're being abandoned by their fellow Germans, that they're the only ones that are holding on to something uh, traditionally German, some sense of German identity. And that's, of course, the question of what you define as German. If you define um, the German high culture, and they are not as much Goethe as Schiller uh, and people who write about tolerance and so on, that is the late 18th century, including Humboldt and so on, you know, if, if that's Germanness, you know, then both Klemperer and my father were very close to that. Whereas a lot of other people were defining Germanness as, you know, something of the folkish thinkers of the late 19th century, you know, racists, you know, anti-Semites, uh, or, you know, the sort of imperial German uh, hubris, uh, you know, arrogance, and so on. If that's German, you know, lording it over other people, you know, uh, and uh, extorting things and... Uh, whatever, you know, conquering their territories, then this is not what Klemper and my father 
ultimately were into because they had a sense of human beings at the other end. I have to mention an anecdote of, of Tom, Tom Angrus's. I don't know whether, whether you knew Werner Angrus, mm-hmm. um, who was teaching at Stony Brook for a whole while, and then after his retirement moved back to Berlin. And when we first got to know each other, it turned out that Tom had a much uh, stronger German accent than I had, uh, and um, you know he left as a refugee in 1938, and then fought in the in the American army against the Nazis, and you know got parachuted into D-Day and got captured by the Germans and survived for 10 or 11 days, and then got liberated, and then ended up you know capturing the Germans who had captured him, oh. and so on, and then went back and got a PhD in the States and so on. And, you know, when we were talking to each other, I said in English to Tom, you know, what language should we use, you know, for our conversation, you know. And Tom said to me, uh, in German, uh, Conrad, I don't let this Hitler take my German away from me. (laughs) Yeah, very good. You mentioned again this notion of this Nazi imperial project in the East, and one of the things that struck me was your father's ambition. I mean, he, he tries to learn Russian, he tries to learn Polish, he wants to be an officer. Um, he's he's, and it's more than just a, an educated person using his time efficiently to improve himself. I got the sense that he he wants to contribute, he wants to be part of this new um, order that's being created um, in, in, in maybe in an ambivalent sense because he isn't an overt uh, racist. He's not part of that particular project, but um, he sees some value, some potential for value and some potential for himself uh, to find a, a place there. Um, and, and this again goes back to the, his experience uh, as a young man and the difficulties of, of his education during the First World War and then finding a, a career and making a career for himself um, in, the, in the tumult of the Weimar Republic. Um, you get a sense that he's, he's trying to find a, a place. Well, actually, I mean, I read that slightly differently. Um, you know, I mean, he, I mean, he has his unfulfilled ambition, and one of the problems is, of course, that the, the brother of his wife, uh, you know, Franz Petri, uh, is a leading light in Western research, which has become highly controversial. Peter Schuttler and various other people have attacked him for it, um, and you know, he wrote his second dissertation, that is Franz Petri did, uh, on the Romance Germanic language frontier in the West. Okay? Now, this might seem like a very arcane topic today, but the SS loved it because it showed that Franks, that is the original Franks of France um, and of Franconia and Charlemagne and so on, had actually moved, you know, with Germanic languages and, and dialects and Germanic place names and so on further into France in settling than had been historically known before. And the SS thought, gee, you know, this is nice. We can just annex these territories because now we have historic proof. So, you know, this brother of my mother, you know, had a, a, you know, a highly promising career, got a professorship during the early part of the war at the University of Cologne. Uh, and, you know, my father and he were in the same seminar together. That's after all how he then ended up meeting my mother. Um, so that, you know, one of them made an academic career and ended up in the military government of Belgium and in charge of the university section of that military government. That is, you know, his brother-in-law. But my father is stuck uh, teaching 
gymnasium in Magdeburg before the war and not making it to the university. Uh, and then he is stuck as a staff sergeant in the military, not making it into being an officer. So he is frustrated. And I think my mother also aggravated that because she knew a lot of officers' wives in Magdeburg and you know, had social contacts with them. And she was always in a kind of a position where she sort of had to apologize for my father to the other wives. Uh, and you know how uh, a certain kind of socialite woman can be. I mean, I'm not saying that my mother was one. I'm saying that this is what goes on when you have tea and cookies and whatever, and you're talking about things and so on. And it's not a gender comment in general. I have to immediately take that back. <laughs> but, um, you know, be that uh, as it may. I think with the other stuff, with learning Polish and learning Russian, I think he is thinking about how are we ever going to live together with these people after we have done such dreadful things to them. Uh, and he is genuinely curious in trying to find out, you know, how they tick. I mean, how can they... How can the Polish people be so enthusiastically Catholic? I mean, what is it about Catholicism and Polish nationalism, you know, that combines them? Uh, or, you know, with the Russians, he wants to find out about Stalin. He wants to find out about communism. He wants to find out about the Tsarist tradition. This is a Slavic people with an infinite capacity for suffering, at least as far as he can tell. Uh, you know, this also being a German cliche. Uh, and he, he can't imagine that, you know, that this could go on. And therefore, he wants to know about it. Uh, and he has once or twice a chance where I think it's a matter of becoming an interpreter or whatever, where he, you know, that would be then the career, you know, in the new territory. Do you see what I mean? And there he sort of says no. He sort of says, I can't do that yet uh, or whatever. So I, if he had been, you know, really pushy uh, in the direction of, you know, these are great career chances, you know, let me seize them. Uh, then I think, you know, I, he would have done something in applying some of this partial knowledge, okay? There's a great passage where your father speaks precisely to this point. It's on page 316. It really is a fascinating passage. In some ways, it's, it's kind of a paradox. He writes, One of the strongest experiences I've had in this war is that in the face of so much hunger, destitution, disease, and death, I've not had to renounce anything that I've done as a German or a Christian. And here's the section where he talks about, relates to what you were just talking about. But what about the future? We need an education of European breadth in all intellectual matters, languages, history, geography. But what will provide us with the human foundation? That was, I mean, there are so many moments like that in the, in the letters where he's, he's trying to work through this, this process, both of, of finding a role in, in this new Germany, but of, as you said, providing it with a, a human foundation, connecting it to religion and so forth. Yeah, I mean, humane. I mean, I would <laughs> just change the pronunciation of the word <laughs> slightly because this is where the project falls apart on him, you know, because he sort of, I mean, you know, you know, why he has to phrase it that way, you know, it's kind of defensive, you know, and he's still trying to hold his German nationalism and his, you know, Lutheran Christianity together, you know, uh, and, and he's sort of pretending that, you know, that, they work hand in hand. But seeing, you know, these, you know, hundreds and even ultimately thousands of people die in front of his feet, um, you know, because he can't feed them, uh, you know, you know, he knows that he's not 
I'm not following the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you know, the, the loaves and the fishes are not multiplying. You know, people are dying. And, you know, all he can think of is, uh, you know, altar pieces, you know, of a dying Christ when he sees the bodies and so on. And then he mentions the, the, the Grunewald, uh, you know, altar uh, in, the, in, the, in the Alsace and so on, which is a kind of uh, um, pre-expressionist, you know, Gothic altar piece and so on with a Christ that has you know lar- much larger feet and hand hands and so on and you know he looks I mean really destitute and so on. That's what he thinks about and, and I think that's why he sleeps so much because on some level, on a rational level he clings to to the com- combinability to, that he can reconcile uh, nationalism and Christianity and on some irrational level he knows that that can't be done. Um, you know, and he feels guilty about it. And that's one of the reasons which leads him, you know, other than sort of the practical part of keeping the, the food going, you know, it leads him to working with some of the POWs, some of the more educated Russians in camp and, 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 and to befriend them. And there's a tragic irony here that it's his proximity with the prisoners, sometimes out of uh, you know sympathy or you know, because of his conversations with the more educated ones, but sometimes in his official capacity, dispensing food and so forth. Um, that's eventually what kills him. He contracts um, typhoid from the other prisoner from the prisoners in the camp. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I mean, apparently it gets transmitted by lice, and you know, if you if you're standing, you know, in there, and you have a few hundred people crowding about you that want to get the little food that is available, and you're trying to be fair in distributing it, and so on, you just you know, uh, you know, get get touched, and you are touching, you know, and you know, trying to keep order. He even has to beat on some people to keep them in line, and so on. I mean, when you're doing that, you know, you're in there, you know, practically, and when you're so Socializing, you know, uh, with the with these Russian POWs trying to learn Russian, and they're coming to you, and they're telling you about their own faith. There are examples of that, or they're telling you about their family back in various kinds of Russian cities like Petersburg, uh, and so on. You know, or they're telling you about their intellectual careers, or they're telling you about the, their suffering under the communists, and so on. Then, you know, you you know, your I mean, contact, you know, also means physical contact, you know. This is psychological, mental, human contact and so on with them. And, you know, yes, and there is a certain kind of logic uh, in that, um, you know, the tragedy in it is that he begins to understand that this is uh, an inhumane uh, war, that the war is basically pointless, that they're not really helping Russians overthrow communism, but they're using Russians for the sake of German imperial ends. Uh, and that is betraying their trust. Uh, and that is, um, you know, something that, you know, as a political project, uh, he does not want to support. He thinks, you know, he begins to understand that, uh, uh, you know, this war should has to stop. And that's why he's looking around for some other kind of foundation um, to build a post-war Europe on. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he really can't find one uh, because, you know, the Russians with whom he deals, only a few of them are have a kind of naive Christianity. 
but the other ones are, are secularized intellectuals, artists, and so on. Um, you know, and that doesn't suffice. And besides, you know, Christianity is in recession on the German side as well. That won't do. And so, you know, what else is there? And one of the things where I'm still not willing to let him off the hook is that what I miss is a conception of human rights. You know, I think he has a sense of of dignity and of every human being being directly unto God and thereby also being equal in some fashion. But he doesn't really understand uh, that, um, you know, the foundation of this new Europe would need to be a new conception of every human being having the same rights. And once you have that, then you have to start treating them differently and you can't make war uh, on other people. Um, if you believe that. That's holding him to a pretty high standard. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, it took me, you know, uh, five decades to persuade myself to deal with these letters because I knew uh, already from the early 1950s when I was uh, 10 or 11 or 12 that my mother was trying to get them edited and she had recruited a Protestant clergyman uh, in North Germany to transcribe them and they got about halfway through the project and then they sent them out to publishers and in the early to mid-50s, no German publisher was wanted letters about the Second World War. They had enough had enough of that. They wanted to go on and live a peaceful life afterwards. So uh, I have been balking at that, and it's taken me a long time, and only after I retired as director of the Centrum für Zeithistorische Forschung in Potsdam, the Institute for Contemporary Research, and Research on Contemporary German History in Potsdam, that I then said to myself, uh, Conrad, uh, you know, this is the time. If you're ever going to do it, now you're going to have to own up to uh, what your mother left as a bequest uh, to you. Uh, and then I asked a young German military historian, Klaus Arnold, who had written a very good book on the middle part of the Russian front, um, to look at the letters and to tell me, you know, did he think that they were worth, you know, editing? And he came back absolutely enthusiastic in reading these letters. And of course, it had something to do with the fact that they offer perspectives, unusual perspectives. They're not battlefield chronicles and so on, not sort of tank, you know, tank commander heroics, you know, when we sort of, you know, blasted, you know, so and so many Soviet tanks into oblivion and stuff. But they're rather cultural and social uh, pictures of the Second World War. Uh, that's where they're rich. And so historiography had, I think, also to change in order to be interested in these other dimensions uh, of warfare uh, and in, the, in political and philosophical reflections rather than uh, in you know, the somewhat more traditional version of military history. Um, and then we went to a couple of German publishers, and the first one sort of hemmed and hawed, and the second one also, you know, had fortunately an editor who is by now retired, uh, who was also part of the age cohort of the children of the war, you know, for whom that was immediately fascinating. And uh, he supported the project, and then we got a little bit of funding from a couple of German foundations and uh, with that help, we were able to put a German edition together. And then I took the German edition to Brigitta van Rheinberg at Princeton. And since she has a German background herself, she got involved in reading the letters. And then we worked out what we needed to do to them in an English fashion, like, you know, 
not have quite as much uh, everyday detail and maybe quite as many religious uh, you know, and philosophical reflections. Uh, and we had to change the introduction and add some things and so on to make them more accessible for an American audience. And I hope we have um, succeeded with that. Well, I think the book should be of interest to non-military historians as well, um, you know, because of the reflections on just the general um, German campaign in the East and the the conditions in Poland and elsewhere and his discussions of of Christianity and of architecture. I think it's a reflection on German culture and life during this period, Um, again, much in the same way that Klemper's diaries, again, from a different, totally different perspective in the way that Klemper's diaries were. I'm working on a project on Eric Ludendorff, and I've been accused of having him on the brain lately. But, uh, of course, uh, your father manages to mention Ludendorff and the the neo-pagan circle around him. So there are a lot of connections that one can make. Yeah, and uh, sure. And, I mean, you know, you know of Ludendorff's role, obviously, you know, after 1918. (laughs) And uh, and there's various kinds of focus sympathies and, uh, you know, unfortunate political, you know, things. I think, you know, that's where, you know, where the problems are coming from that my father had with Ludendorff. Well, I'd like to wrap up the interview by asking you what you're working on now. And I, usually people will mention whatever project they happen to be involved in. I suspect you're going to come at me with uh, three or four, but maybe you could just mention the the um, the one that's coming out uh, soonest or the one that you're most excited about. Gee, how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're, they're actually... Uh, let me let me think about <laughs> this one for a moment. No, I mean I think these other two things are out. Um, yeah, I'm working on just two different things at the time. One of them is a kind of um, balance sheet of German unification after more than two decades. That's an edited volume on United Germany, and it is in the process of being assembled. I have about half the texts for it, and it goes into the domestic politics, into the economics, uh, into the social adjustment, into the cultural debates, and also into the foreign policy dimensions. Uh, And it has a kind of uh, interesting design because I took an East German, a West German and let an Anglo-American comment uh, on their different points of view. So Hmm. in each of these blocks, you know, we have contending views, and then we have an attempt to sort of draw up uh, an intermediary balance, because I thought that uh, it's still a little bit too early to have finite uh, assessments, uh, and therefore we should have the argument as argument and not pretend that we have already 2020 vision in hindsight. And that you have the answer, right? Yeah, right. And the other thing, uh, which is, I mean, and, and this, the first thing is a kind of, you know, this is sort of uh, ordinary history in the sense of, you know, very contemporary, but sort of the normal kind of thing that people do. But the other one, of course, is... Uh, daunting because I've just started to write a history of Europe in the 20th century uh, under the title of Taming Modernity uh, that deals with the European dynamism that got them in control of the rest of the world by 1900 with imperialism and then ran them into World War I, World War II and the Holocaust and uh, many other nasty things including uh, the communist dictatorships uh, but then also uh, in the taming process 
got them to learn how to live with some of these forces somewhat more constructively in the second half of the 20th century, so that in a whole lot of issues uh, like uh, gun control and public transport and the welfare state and so on, I find them somewhat more uh, civilized these days than some of the people that take up a lot of space in American media these days. Uh-huh. And when, is that going to? Are those going to be in English? First of all, yeah, I'm writing that one in English. Sure. Okay. And will it be out by the fall? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it has it has tw- it has 28 chapters, and uh, you know, I'm 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 getting done with the second one. Okay. So this is going to keep me uh, out of circulation and out of trouble. I hope for another two or three years. I also like to impose on the authors that I interview to ask them uh, what book I should do next on on the the website. You know, is there a a book in military history that you've read that's come out recently that you think is worthy of attention? Yeah, I don't know the first name right off the bat, but uh, Hartmann uh, yeah. from the Institute for Christian, yeah, or whatever Christian, yeah. Christian Hartmann from the Institute for Zeitgeschichte. Um, I looked at a number of of books you know, on the Russian campaign and on the whole issue of the of the involvement of the Wehrmacht in um, in in German uh, genocide, uh, the Holocaust, uh, military, um, uh, you know, uh, war crimes, and so on. And I think that that is the the, the book that I find most uh, um, substantial and most carefully reasoned, because some of the literature is very apologetic and, you know, tries to maintain the clean Wehrmacht kind of thing, although hardly any of that gets written in English anymore. But, you know, still occasionally you get some memoir and so on cropping up from that point of view. Uh, and some of the other literature is is written in a very kind of uh, universally condemning, uh, you know, blanketly condemning fashion that doesn't differentiate very much between different kinds of troops, namely the the Sicherheitsdivision uh, and the security divisions behind the front versus the actual fighting divisions. It doesn't sort of uh, differentiate enough between various kinds of times uh, of the war and places of the war and so on. And the Hartmann book, I think, you know, uses a half a dozen or five, I think it is, different kinds of divisions uh, in order to do some comparative history. Uh, And it works, I think, reasonably well on issues like combat atrocities uh, and or anti-partisan warfare and or uh, Wehrmacht involvement in uh, Holocaust uh, roundups and in direct uh, the sort of um, the genocide with bullets, um, you know, in the in in the fall of 1941 and so on. So you know that is one book that I would mention. And then um, there are a couple of dissertations um, of students of Chris Browning's, with which I was also involved. Uh, 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 one of them um, is on ethnic Germans in Transnistria. Uh, and the other one uh, is also taking various kinds of army units uh, secured in uh, lower down than secure in, within security divisions and comparing their involvement in the actual uh, mass murder. Uh, and those are both uh, excellent. And when they will come out as books, they will be a real um, step forwards in that whole discussion. 
Oh, well, thanks uh, for those references that's uh, newer than new. In fact, books that aren't even out yet, so we can look forward to those. And one of the things I can do is I can post the actual uh, citations for the for the dissertations, the author's names at least, uh, on the website. And so if readers want to kind of note that, put it away somewhere for future reference, they can do so. This will also challenge our readers to go out and learn German, something I'm very much in favor of, so that they can read the Hartman book, because it hasn't been translated, correct? No, it, it, I don't think yet either. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if there is real interest in it, um, I think, you know, it should be translated. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Conrad, for joining me today. Thank you very much for your interest. You've been listening to New Books in Military History, and that was uh, my interview with Conrad H. Yarosh, the author of Reluctant Accomplice, published by Princeton University Press in 2011. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.